Hey, this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to episode 10 of the Human Things Podcast. Episode 10. Welcome. This is the the let's just call this the last of season one. Just for fun. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make more and we're going on from here, but episode 10, we'll call this the last of season one. Cause we're going to take a break while we edit these and try to get on to making things shorter and certain or releasing these shorter, more excerpted versions for people. And so this is going to be part two of my conversation with Scott Klusendorf. Uh, again, it was a far reaching conversation. We'll set it aside. We're going to edit out one version of that where you can watch the entire interview from beginning to end after we release both of these. And uh, we just didn't want to, we, we, we didn't want to lose a second of it at the same time. We wanted to make sure that we honored the format that we're working on right now. Uh, to, to, and that format usually includes me talking about silly things at the beginning or, or not, I don't even think silly. I mean, I take these things very seriously. They, they may be stupid, but if you talk to me, you're going to find out that I take them very seriously. Last time I mentioned Gomez Adams, I, I, I'm serious about that to the point that I have, I have a high view. I mean, for every single character that's been played by multiple people, I have surprisingly strong opinions about who is the actual paradigm, who represented that role the best. And it can come out. Uh, and if you, if you want to talk about it, we can have a sit down because I won't have just, I won't just have, feel, sometimes I just feel a certain way. And that's, that's legit. I mean, I, I don't know if any of us, I'm a football fan. I'm a sports fan by nature. And I will sit down in front of a game where two teams and I have no rooting interest are playing against each other. And I don't know, I would have told you five seconds before it started do you care who wins that game? I would have told you no. But if I sit down to watch it, five seconds into watching it, I care. I, 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 For whatever reason, I've decided, wow, I was unaware of the deep hatred that I have for that program and how much I really want to watch them lose right now. And it, it was something I didn't even know about myself. I learned something about myself today when I turned on this football game and learned how much I hate that. So so I that translates over into silly things and I, I hate to keep coming back to the Raul Julia Gomez Adams, but that that's a, that's a compliment to the brilliance of the Raul Julia Gomez Adams. If you're an Adams Family fan and you watch those movies, to me that's 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 the pinnacle. That 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 guy represents. And we could do this. We could go through all of them. I don't have any opinion. I haven't watched the Doctor Who's, so I know there are people that have very strong opinions about the best Doctor. I don't know anything about I'd probably say David Tennant, but that's just because I like David Tennant. And since I know some of those people who played him, I'm like, oh, I like David Tennant, probably the best out of that group that I know who've played him. Sherlock Holmes, I'm a Robert Downey Jr. fan. I loved the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies. First one I went to see was actually, I went to see something else. And that was the movie I walked into. Surprisingly, I just landed on RDJ. And I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. I like Sherlock Holmes stories. I've seen a lot of people play Sherlock Holmes, love RDJ in that role. He just, he captured so much of what I think is interesting about that character. He has a sort of also um, plays it in a sort of Nikola Tesla overwhelmed by his environment. If you've ever read about Tesla, you know, Tesla struggled with being overwhelmed by the information that he was taking in. There's trouble filtering it. And I think RDJ, Robert Downey Jr. seemed to play, I'm saying an RDJ like he and I are buddies or something. I, yeah, I don't know him, Robert Downey Jr. So I, th I think he did a great job at that. I, surprisingly strong opinions across the board about who is and what is the best version of any particular role. Here, I want to talk about something else, though, before we get to Scott. 
that's not the thing I wanted to talk about. It is a thing I do talk about, but it's not the thing I wanted to talk about. This goes back to a, a meme that came across, a reel that came across my social media feed from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, where they're interrogating since the, the dentist interrogation scene. I, we were just talking, J.D. and I were talking before we started filming. I, I'm a fan of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. To the best of my knowledge, I've never watched an episode. What I know about it comes from all the scenes that I get online that I see come up, and I just I think they're hysterical. I've never watched the show. I don't know that I ever will. I just don't find that much time to watch. I watch one show at a time, pretty much. My wife and I will find one show. We watch it, and then when it's over, we move on to the next thing. We don't have a whole... They, My wife and kids have a whole host of shows I like to watch, but for me... If this is the show I'm watching, if I'm not reading a book, I'm watching that show. I'm watching one show at a time, and then I move on. And right now, you know, I'm stuck a little bit because Ted Lasso is only coming out episodically, and I love Ted Lasso. Love that show. Love it. Uh, and so I'm working my way through that one right now. There's nothing else for me. I was deeply disappointed in The Last of Us. My wife and I watched that, and that was just started out great, went downhill, uh, and and. It was just, oh, the narrative just fell apart. Just fell apart. Oh man, it, it's one of those ones that if you're gonna, if you're selling me on a show of these, um, you know, fungus zombies, then give me the show about you know fungus zombies. Don't take them away from me. There was so little of the show actually about the. Fun. I was excited about that, and just ended up not caring for the show at all by the time it was over. So anyway, but that's not again back to Brooklyn Nine Nine. So what I what I like about this scene though is that there's it starts with a discussion about whether or not dentists are doctors. Questions for you, doctor. Doctor, huh? It's funny when people call dentists doctor. We are doctors. We do four years of medical school. Now it's called dental school. But we learn about the entire body. Yeah, but if you had cancer, you can call it dentist. You know it's actually harder to get into dental school than medical school. Well, because there are fewer dental schools. Because most people want to become actual. Doctor. That's ridiculous. It's not like we're college professors calling ourselves doctors. It's not the same thing, my friend. Well, sure it is. When someone has a heart attack on a plane, do they yell out, yo, does anybody here have an art history PhD? A PhD is a doctorate. It's literally describing a doctor. Maybe let's refocus. No, the problem here is that medical practitioners have co-opted the word doctor. Okay, Captain. Now, I know we live in a world where anything can mean anything, and nobody even cares about etymology. <sighs> Apparently, that's a trigger for me. Yeah. Apparently. And that I have never connected with a reel so strongly as I did. I think that one, when it came across my feed, because I internally, even if I don't rant at everyone, but I do rant a lot about how people use words. That one is one that I felt deeply when he's like, nobody cares about etymology. And he's screaming and pointing at the guy. I'm sorry. I'm laughing. Just thinking about it. It's funny to me, but it's funny because I, I feel that frustration when people misuse things And here, but here's the, the problem that I feel the, the, what makes me the angriest about when people don't understand the phrases that they're using. And, and one of the things that I ranted about for years was the use of begging the question that we talk about a lot. People say that begs the question. And when they say that begs the question, every time they say it nowadays, they mean, it means that raises the question, but that's not what begging the question meant prior to them misusing it. They started missing somebody somewhere misused it because they thought it made them sound Smart. Instead of saying that raises the question, they said that begs the question. And it doesn't beg the question because begging the question is a philosophical term that's generally used when you assume within one of your premises a point that you have the, the responsibility to demonstrate through argument. And so it corrupts the argument from then on out. We talk about begging the question a lot when we talk about the issue of abortion because we say that most people beg the question as far as the 
the value of human life. They assume that the unborn are the kind of thing we're allowed to kill before they make that argument in support of that. And that's why we use the tool, trot out the toddler. We talk about trotting out the toddler. So when somebody says that they think privacy is a reason to justify abortion, if they think poverty is a reason to justify abortion, if they, whatever, if they think abusive, anything, what you say is you put your hand at your hip, Imagine you have a two-year-old standing next to you and ask them if they would be okay under those circumstances to kill a two-year-old for the reasons that they've given you. And if they won't kill a two-year-old for those reasons, if it doesn't justify killing a two-year-old, then it doesn't justify killing the unborn, unless you can demonstrate by argument that the unborn are something different from that two-year-old. But if you just assume it, then you've begged the question. You have assumed what you have a responsibility to demonstrate. And that's what begging the question is, or was. Now begging the question means raising the question because it's been misused for so long. And this is, this, 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 this is what, this gets me. This, this gets me because you can see it coming because they start to misuse a term and they misuse it so pervasively that we just change what the term means to match the misuse and this creates a very frustrating position to be in if you value language as a clarifying element in the human relationships, in all human relationships. Language should be clarifying. It should be. It should make things clear. If we use language, that's why when people unnecessarily use confusing language, it's, it's, a, it's so irritating. It's because if you're trying to inform somebody of some, uh, make a case about something complicated, your job is to break it down so that people can understand it. My guest today in part two, again, is Scott Kluzendorf. I have said multiple times, I think that there are few people on earth that are as good as Scott at doing what I'm talking about. He takes very complicated things and he makes it so that people can understand them. He talks about that being a translator. He learns as best he can about very sophisticated ideas and then he understands how to make those sophisticated ideas translate to people who can't operate at that level of sophistication, but for whom that information is important for them to know. You have to make it so they know it. There's a, the movie Philadelphia, the, the character that Denzel Washington plays, the lawyer, tells people to explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old. Right? C.S. Lewis talked about that in his writings, that somebody who genuinely and truly understands something is capable of explaining it to somebody else. And if you're not capable of explaining it to somebody else, then the problem is you don't really understand that. And I think all of us have been there. All of us have thought we understood something and somebody said, explain it to me. And in the middle of explaining it to him, we may realize I don't fully understand what I'm talking about. I'm having trouble taking this complicated idea and making it something accessible for you. And, and so that's, that's the problem when people use language deceptively or use complicated language. But here's the thing. If you take language seriously and you know what begging the question means and people start to misuse begging the question and you try to correct them because you say that's not what begging the question means, here's the tension that arises. Once enough people have misused it, it's commonly understood to mean that. And so the definition of begging the question or any word like that changes. The misuse becomes the correct use because the misuse becomes pervasive enough that it becomes the common understanding about what that word or phrase means. And that's why that scene cracks me up because I know exactly how he feels in that moment where he starts yelling and then it cuts to, it's funny because he starts screaming 
about the, the word doctor and the etymology of the word. And then you immediately cut to him just having, I think, drinking something. Saying, Apparently that's a trigger for me. <laughs> and he, he realizes that he's just lost it over this. But I get it, man, because I so many times I have to sit there and listen to people misuse words. And as they misuse it, I, I know as I'm correcting it, this one's out. This one's out. It's, 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 I've lost this one. I, I, and, and here's the thing that I can't live with. <laughs> I mean, this is the, this is the thing that keeps me up at night. This is how petty I am, right? It makes me insane that because the definition actually changes to meet the misuse of the term, that the people who were misusing it are now right. And that makes me crazy because they started using a term they didn't understand and they, they did it so often that everyone began to believe that the term meant the way they were using it and not the way it was all actually intended to be used. And now they're right. And I brought this up with a friend of mine who's a crazy smart guy, and he pushed back on me a little bit. He said, well, you know, the English language has changed. And it has changed, by the way, a lot. It changes all the time. If you go and read, even reading about issues like reading on abortion, when you go read common law documents, when you go to the primary sources, what you find out in the primary sources is that the way they spoke English even 200 years ago was not the way we speak, spake, way of like, something like Jar Jar, uh, not the way we speak English today. They use terminology different. They use word, different words. There's things that have been added to the human language that we use now that they would never have used then. We still have words that are residuals of old words that, that don't make like their negative senses of the words that we don't use the root any longer, but we still use the negative sense, right? I mean, we don't talk, we, we refrigerate things, but we don't talk about refrigerating them or anything. So there's things where, where we use different with the prefix that we, we still use the, the, pre, the adjusted word, the adapted word, not the root anymore. Thing, there's words like that all throughout the human language. So the language changes. I get that. But I, I can't stand watching it change. And, and, it, and the idea that you can look into a dictionary and under the definition of literally, it says not literally as one of the definitions is the kind of thing that makes my brain hurt because that so many people use the term literally that they now have to change the definition. So it is not literally, uh, I watched them misusing the term ironic and until, till it is just, it makes no, it, 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 everybody's lost all sense of what that word means. They're talking about things being ironic. There's a whole song. Isn't an ironic uh, by Alyssa, 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 no, that's not right. It is Morissette. Yeah. All right. I, I cannot believe I'm blanking on her. Alyssa, whatever. whatever. Nothing in that song is ironic. There's nothing about that. It's all a bummer. It's all irritating, but it's not ironic. It doesn't meet the definition of ironic. Isn't it ironic? And that song used to come on and scream. No, but, but that's, you know, irony has been co-opted, literally has been co-opted. Begging the question has been co-opted. Not people just use words and they have no idea what they mean. I, this is a small, I used to share an office with a guy who misused the term crocodile tears all the time. And I had a pastor that did the same. They would talk about crocodile tears. And it's like, you, and he did it for a long time. And I finally said, you understand that crocodile tears are the tears that are shed by crocodiles while they're eating their food. So it's meant to be, it's intended to communicate that the tears are fake, that they're disingenuous, right? Uh, and 
He said, no, no, I just thought they were big tears. He said, I know, I had a pastor that used to preach from the pulpit and use that, but I couldn't correct my pastor, but I can correct you. So stop using that word, that, that phrase wrong. <laughs> so, so get it right, you know? And, and so you know, there's my rant for the day uh, based on that Brooklyn nine, nine scene is that I, I've never felt a scene so much in my life. And, and I, I get it. The human language is fluid and it changes. And I'm a beneficiary of that. And I know that I speak in a language that's entirely different than the generations before me talked. That's fine as well. But what the hard part is not just living through it, but the thing that keeps me up at night is when the wrong people become right because I spent all that time trying to correct them and they just kept saying it wrong until it was right. And that doesn't make sense how that can happen. I can be wrong for so long that I'm now right. All right. I'm going to have to take a deep breath. Alanis Morissette. Thank you for the correction, Shady. Yeah, we were struggling with that. Obviously we're huge fans, huge, huge Alanis Morissette fans in this room. Very important artist in my life. I can't even remember her name as I'm trying to talk about her, but isn't it ironic for the record? There's nothing ironic about anything that happens in that song. It doesn't meet any definition of irony that I ever saw prior to that song coming out. It's a bummer. Isn't it a bummer? Should be the name of that song. It's just a bummer. It's just a bit. Of, it's not irony, but it's a bummer. All right. So moving on um, one quick warning to another stupid thing. Cause we're going to do a lot of substantive stuff with Scott uh, as we move on is just, this is just a general warning Man, not a warning. This is a piece of advice, right? Try not to fall in love with uh, people who provide you things, right? Cult brand, I've talked about this on the show before. Cult branding is where you start to identify yourself personally. And in particular, on this one, I'm thinking about Disney. Um, I, 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 my family has been a Disney family. I don't advertise that all the time because people have very strong opinions about Disney. But for most of my life, our family has been a very Disney family. We go to Disney. We used to go once a year. We stopped. Now, it wasn't political reasons. I don't, I'm not a big boycott guy because I just don't do much. And I, I mean, me denying you my money is not going to bring you to your knees. And, and I just, I don't think boycotts work that way. I, I, I do believe boycotts work. I think that you have to be committed to a boycott on a large scale, right? I, I think that we as Christians, by the way, could effectively boycott things and get the change that we want from those companies if we had did this in an organized manner and by, by that, what I mean, what you have to do in order to effectively boycott something is spend time preparing the boycott. Like if we wanted, let's say we wanted to bring some, anybody, any group to its knees uh, over some issue that we wanted to talk about. You don't just say everybody boycott because that doesn't work. What you do is you spend time organizing a date where you're not going to boycott. You see this a lot, by the way. Um, one of the things I was, I was fascinated by Gandhi and his work in working, helped, helping work to, to, to rid India at the time of British colonial rule. One of the things that they would have are days of prayer and fasting where everybody didn't work. And, and, you know, you see the movie, they talk about it. One of the guys says, you mean like a worker strike? And he said, no, I mean a day of prayer and fasting. Now that no work will be getting done. Eh, that's just a part of it. Right? So very organized. We're going to convince everyone in the country to not work today because we're going to be doing a day of prayer and fasting. And when we all don't show up, it's not a worker strike. It's a day of prayer and fasting that operates the same way. So what I mean, and so that's just an illustration of what I mean by a proper boycott. If you want to properly boycott something, you need to organize the boycott. You need to spend a year 
getting everybody or months or, or whatever time it takes to get a commitment for people to not use that product, not go to that place, not do the thing that you want them to do. And everybody has to do it at once. You have to punish them in one huge fell swoop. You can't just everybody trickle out because they're going to trickle back in. That's the funniest thing about boycotts of Netflix, right? Everybody said, we're going to boycott Netflix because of what they put on today. And everybody leaves. And then a series comes on that everybody wants to watch and they trickle back in. There. They're all sneaking back in the back door. Okay, is the boycott over now? Can I go watch this series I've been wanting to watch? That's not how you boycott somebody. How you really boycott somebody is you organize it, you schedule it, and then everybody stops doing it all at once. And that's how you cripple somebody. It's not by convincing one person to leave today because they pick up somebody else tomorrow. It's convincing everybody to stop on the same day, at the same time, at the same moment. And if you can't do that, it's not a boycott. It's just you making decisions about how you're going to use your dollars. And that's legitimate. Everybody should do that. Everybody should know what they will and will not tolerate from the person that provides service for them. Back to my main point, though. We liked Disney. And we went every year as a family vacation and we were able to do it because Disney had all of these things in place that made it reasonable for us. They used to have this account you could pay money into. So we would spend a year paying for our trip before we went on it. So it was all paid for by and Disney provided this account, put money into it, pay off a little bit at a time. We have till X amount of days prior to the trip to pay it off. We would pay it off. So we would go on a trip and it was already paid for. And we would get the dining plan. The dining plan covered meals. And so that was covered. So everything that we do on our trip is already paid for before we get there. Little by little, Disney took those things away. They made unwise business decisions. They are not the creative force that they used to be. As a matter of fact, they're kind of creative lackluster. Their creativity is lackluster right now. They're just regenerating old things over and over again to try to make money off of them. Here's my point though, because it's not just about Disney, although Disney plays into it a little bit, but it's about a lot of things. One of the things that became very hard when I tried to convince people in my life that I was no longer going to go that I was like, I'm done with them. And people said, but that's what we've always done. They identified us with them. And I said, no, 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 no. They're, they are a service provider and they have adapted a model that can't possibly deliver enough service for the amount of money that they're asking for as they continuously took away perks of their service and increase the prices of all of the services they were still continuing to, to pay for. And as I explained to my family, when we were all discussing this, and this was a couple of years ago that we had this discussion. So this isn't new. This isn't something we just did this week. But one of the things that we've had, we've started to, I've had, we've tried to reinforce was I loved Disney then, but that's not what's going on today point another place. And I know Marvel's owned by Disney, but the Marvel was run by them. If you liked Marvel movies when they were first coming out, there was something that you liked and you were in incapable of seeing when they took a turn and they started to go bad. And I saw that long before other people seemed to start to see that. This is, this is garbage. I'm not enjoying what's coming out anymore. And if you don't believe me, go back and watch the first few Marvel movies and you'll be shocked at how good they used to be versus what they've become now today. And, and you see these they said they, they, these people were producing this and I knew people that identified themselves as Marvel people, just like I knew people identified themselves as DP, DC people. So don't identify yourself with these. They're service providers. You are paying them money to give something to you. Don't fall in love with them because if you fall in love with them or you identify with them, you'll be incapable of seeing when they have stopped giving you what you're paying for. And that's an important thing with service providers. They have to deliver what you're paying for. And if you get loyal to them, 
They will stop. They will get every dime from you that they can without giving you the service that you expect for it. And, and to the point where it doesn't make sense. You fell in love with them and now you're loyal to them when they are no longer what they were. Let's go back to Disney for a second. Disney has publicly said that what they want are rich families, wealthy families, or people that have saved up to take one trip where they can spend tons of money and they're not interested in loyal customers anymore or rewarding people for a lifetime of giving them business. Why? Because they make more money off of those other people. So if you were in a relationship with a woman as a man like this and they told you, I have no value for the years that we've spent together. I have no interest, no loyalty for all the things that you've given me, all the money that you've spent on me for all of these years. All I care about is finding somebody who makes more money than you so that that will translate into more money for me and what they're spending all that money on. That's what Disney told you and every single person who is a loyal follower of them. And yet, I still see people running around saying I'm a Disney person. If a woman told you that, you would you would kick them to the curb so fast. You would recognize that this is an unhealthy relationship that you're in, but we can't do that with products because we identify ourselves with the products too strongly. So this is just my, take this as unsolicited advice. In a world where products are doing everything that they can to develop what they call cult branding in their followers and their users, resist it. Evaluate anything that you're paying for on the experience that you're paying for. Now I get, my family gets frustrated with me because they're like, you are too quick. They'll tell me you are too quick to pull the, the, the plug on somebody. We go into some place and they don't provide you service and your response is, well, I'm not going back there. And so because one bad service, we don't get to go back. And I tell them, it's not the bad service. It's how they handle when I tell them that they've given me bad service for the money I'm giving me. Because Chick-fil-A has treated me poorly multiple times over the years on the time that I was there at the, the, the place, over years. And anytime I've said to Chick-fil-A, that wasn't right, they made it right. They turned around and did something that demonstrated that they recognized that they had messed up as the service provider. And by that, by the way, as a result, I judge everybody else on Chick-fil-A standards. Right? Because like, if they can do it, why don't you do it? Right? If, if I come to you and say, I paid X amount of money for this service and you didn't deliver that service. And it's funny, my wife and I have talked for, for years about this because she, she tries to be more friendly than I in some of these things. And we've been places. I remember one time we were complaining about a place. And I went, so we got a logic complaint about what just happened here. And so we got up and my wife said, it's not that we want to complain. And I corrected her. Oh, no, 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 no. We do want to complain because we're paying for the service and you didn't provide it. This is actually a complaint. That's all it is, is a complaint. Now I'm gonna complain respectfully, but I need you to understand that I pay for a service and it should be provided. I'm not gonna treat you as a jerk. I'm gonna treat you with respect. I'm gonna tip well, I'm a good tipper. I'm gonna do all the things that you want me to do as a customer as long as you treat me the way that I expect to be treated in the sense of I'm paying for this and that's what I want to get from you. And, and that's an important thing in our relationship. Now, there's all sorts of reasons that you can decide not to spend your money with a company. You can decide not to spend it because you don't like morally what they're doing with the money. You can decide not to spend it because you feel like they've lost sight of what they were and that they've, they've become something else altogether. You can decide because there's a cultural shift within the company and they're not the people that you used to give the money to. But what that's important thing for me as far as talking to my family that I try to instill in them conversationally. Don't ever fall in love so much with a product that long after they've ceased being what you fell in love with, you continue to give them your money. 
there's nothing wrong with saying I loved them then. I loved that product then. I liked giving them the money then. And I don't now that they cease to be what they were when they won me over. And the second they cease to be that I need to stop giving them my money. Here's the clue. The only hope you ever have of getting back what you lost as far as that service provider is by taking away the money when they cease to give you what you used to get from them. So don't, that, that's just a general thing. Just don't, don't fall in love with people who sell you products. They're, they're, they, they're selling. That's what they're doing. You're buying. That's a great, it's a transactional relationship. It works great. It's how the economy flows. But be mindful every time you spend money with somebody, the service that they're providing for you, because they will take advantage of your affection for them every chance they can. And the only chance you have of, this isn't a boycott. This is just you and how you spend your money. Uh, you will be happier in life if you're able to cut off the dead weight and move on when they have stopped being. Don't kid yourself any longer about the person that's in front of you. Megan mentioned it when I interviewed her. She said that I say it a lot, that when somebody, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. When somebody is willing to tell you who they are, and, and that's not true, it's true of the human beings in your life, that's also true of the companies that you work with and that you have a transactional relationship with. Now, that, there's my ranting. There's my ranting for episode 10. Done. Nothing important or insightful about the pro-life movement, except I think there's, I do think that there's something interesting there about boycotts. And I mean that seriously. If you want to try to organize boycotts as a, as a pro-life community, if we want to do that, we need to become more serious about organizing boycotts. We need to stop being reactionary, going online and ranting about it on Facebook or Instagram. You need to get an organized organization together that tries to work hard to explain to the people that we want to join us in our boycott, why it's a benefit to everybody that we send a message to whoever that provider is that is doing something that we find objectionable. And then we do it right. We do something that actually punishes them as opposed to trickle out, trickle in. That doesn't do anything. That's that, And that ultimately just becomes virtue signaling. I just went online to tell everybody how mad I was about something so that you can know I'm on the right side of things. If you're on my side or if you're not, you can be mad at me for whatever position I hold, but just trickling in and trickling out isn't boycotting. Boycotting is an organized thing. And if you want to boycott, be serious about it and let's boycott somebody. All right. Now let's get to Scott Klusendorf in part two of the interview. Uh, so we had his three things uh, and we're still working our way through it. And um, I hope I just have to say this. Obviously I'm, I'm prejudiced on this as far as my high opinion of Scott. I love talking to Scott and I will say that the conversation that we got on video and on audio is very, and very honest depiction about what it's like for Scott and I to sit around and chat. We, this, this is very much like what Scott and I do when we sit around and talk to each other. Now there's other personal stuff that gets involved that we did not cover here. And we'll talk about that when we get together. But when you're talking about discussing issues, this is the, and, and hopefully also then it's communicated how much fun I'm having talking to Scott <laughs> as you go through this, because uh, I enjoy this experience and I hope that you're enjoying this interview. Well, so second idea, I'll throw this out. And by the way, you can revert back. I'm, I'm not trying to draw strict oh, lines no, no, here. Yeah. Uh, inconsistency does not equal refutation. It is very popular in the press today to point out that pro-lifers somehow are inconsistent. Therefore, there goes their whole argument. So, okay, yeah. you say you're pro-life, but what about capital punishment? What about war? What about poverty? What are you doing about all these things? You're inconsistent. You're not pro-life, you're pro-birth. And I think pro-lifers make the mistake, Jay, 
and you and I have seen this many times, they buy the premise of the claim. They say, oh, well, we do love women. We, we're doing all these other social programs. When the minute you answer that way, you just bought their premise that they've done an effective job of refuting your argument, and you should not buy that premise. The pro-life argument is very simple. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. You and I know that there's only three ways you can beat that argument. You can beat it by showing it's invalid, meaning the conclusion doesn't follow logically, or you can beat it by showing the argument is unsound, that one or more of the premises is false, or you can beat it by saying terms are used in an unclear or equivocal way. Outside of that, the argument stands. But the secular culture and a lot of our critics want to change the topic and basically say, well, you're inconsistent. Well, maybe we are. Suppose, Jay, you're an inconsistent guy. You oppose abortion, but you support killing in other ways. Even if you were inconsistent, could your argument that the unborn are human and that intentionally killing them is wrong still be sound and valid, even if you don't apply it consistently? And the answer is yes, your argument stands on its merits, not your behavior. And we're in a culture today that has weaponized everything. Everything is the politics of personal destruction. And what's happening is pro-lifers are buying that premise by saying, oh, look at how many pregnancy centers we got. Look at all the help we give to women after they give birth. You can make that point later, but it should not be your first point. Your first point should be to challenge their attempt to refute your argument in a way that is absolutely bogus. Your yep. argument stands on its merits, not how you behave. And I, I was actually just talking about this with my 14-year-old daughter, and just a, we're going through logic right now. And, um, and, and one of the things we discussed was that idea of attacking the human being versus the argument and ad hominem attacks or anything. Anything gets away from the premises and the conclusions. You don't, you don't have to even entertain an invalid argument, by the way. I mean, you can just point back right. to them as the argument is not structured in such a way that the conclusion follows, so they need to work right. on it, and then you'll address it when they fix that. But but I was encouraging her with that idea of even when there's somebody that you find genuinely distasteful in front of you that's trying to make a case, do your best to listen to their arguments and to not get caught up on who's making them. Because that's right. they terrible people can be right. Horrible yes. human beings can be right on points. Uh, yeah. And, and I've, I've mentioned on other podcasts before, and he's one of my favorite people to bring up, is if we, we like to think about when we talk about the abolitionist movement, people like um, – uh, William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson, the morally upright people. Charles James Fox was actually a member of that as well, and he was widely considered a scoundrel. That doesn't mean he was wrong on the issue of slavery. He was he was absolutely right on the evil of slavery. Right. He just didn't he didn't rely on his moral authority to be able to make that claim for them. And I saw and I how many times I've recently seen where people have tried to make appeals to authority or you know fallacious appeals to authority. I'm right because of who I am. I'm right because of this title that I hold. Uh, you're wrong because of who you are. You're wrong because of these other beliefs that you have. And at the end of the day, I, try, I, I start where you said to start, always. Go back to this one action. I had a young man, at, I think this was at a, like a Tacoa Falls during a Q&A who stood up and said, hey, um, these are all these other things we need to take care of. And if we're not taking care of all of those other things, then we're not being consistent as, as pro-lifers as we approach these things. So, okay. Some of those things are immensely complicated issues that have to do with political structure. It have to do with the best way that we could all, even if we all agree that those are goals that we want to attain, uh, we don't agree on the way that we attain them. And it's not even clear that they're, they're attainable goals. In this particular right. area, I'm just asking you to not kill your children before they're born. 
I mean, that's, that's right. How does it follow that it's okay to intentionally kill an innocent human being because I'm not taking responsibility for every social evil that's out there? That's right. Or, or why do I have a responsibility to end hunger in Africa or to deal with AIDS in Africa or to deal with, with things that are going on here in the United States first? Why do those have to be dealt with first before you stop killing your children before yeah. they're born? See, one of them just requires all of us to accept that the unborn are human before that they're born and then to adjust our behavior towards them accordingly. I don't need to pass laws or the laws will limit evil. I don't need to make everybody on earth have, operate in a political system that distributes resources fairly without any corruption whatsoever on either the supply side or the distribution side. All I right. need for you to do is to not kill your children before they're born. Just agree That's not right. to do that. And then we can could, together, let's go to problem B, which is maybe more difficult politically to get to. But this is what's interesting, Jay, is that often you can call their bluff. You can say, OK, suppose I agree to fix everything wrong with society. Will you now join me opposing abortion? Yep. You know the answer. It's always no. Always women no. have a fundamental right to an abortion is what they tell us. OK, that's an entirely different thing. Defend that position. If that right is fundamental, that means no infringement. That means abortion through all nine months. Defend that position instead of hiding behind our alleged inconsistency. That's right. And and keep that right there at the forefront. Let's let's even if we agree that every one of those things are are important issues that we're going to have to deal with. And I and most of them I do. Most of them as also I agree with you that they're important. Let's right. deal with this one right now. Like not and, and this 15, is where pro-lifers need to be careful too, Jay. They don't distinguish between the operational objectives of our movement and our Christian ethics as Christian individuals. You as a Christian yep. individual and me as a Christian individual, we'll, we'll care about a lot of issues. We care about sex trafficking. We care about treating the poor fairly. We care about refugees. But it doesn't follow that because individually as Christians, we, we apply our ethic in those areas, that the operational objectives of the pro-life movement have to be broad and inclusive as well. And that's the mistake in logic people make. Yeah, and I, there was a the head one of the, the a gentleman I used to know is the head of the must ministries in this area that deals with homeless and, and reaching out to them. And he and I went out to lunch one day and we were discussing this a while back. And I said, I'm grateful that you're out there, right? Because the fact that I don't spend every second of my life working on homelessness doesn't mean yeah. that I don't go to bed prayerfully grateful that you are that you are focused yeah. on this, that you're doing this job, that there are Christians out there that God has, has put into this place to take care of this issue and that that's on that's your right. heart. I'm grateful that you're there because I'm just not going to be there while abortion's there. And he responded, likewise. He said, I'll go to bed at night grateful that you're there doing the things that you're doing on this And that's issue. a fair enough position to hold that God has got us slotted into different areas to uphold human dignity. But when you say that you have no right to oppose abortion until you take care of all this other stuff, that's where we have to say, no, we're not going to buy that premise. And one thing that's different that, that people have to keep in mind, and I, this was, I was done speaking in Indiana and a young, two young women came up to me afterwards and they were asking me, why aren't you on stage talking about sex slavery? If, if you care so much about human rights, why aren't you talking about sex slavery? And I asked them, I said, okay, fair enough, right? But let me ask you this question. 50% of the population of the United States believe that abortion is a right. At least 50% think it's a good thing or they're fighting for the right, right to abortion. I have never spoken in an audience anywhere in the United States where I would say half the people in the audience think sex slavery is a good thing. We all agree yeah. it's a bad thing. This On this particular issue, the problem is it's a bad thing 
that half the population thinks is a good thing and is and, actively fighting for. And to even add more weight to your argument, our government, in many cases, supports and funds worldwide. I mean, right now, the U.S. government funds abortion overseas, and it's costing millions of unborn lives. And we're, we're promoting it legally, funding it through our budgets. It's not just that our culture is in favor of abortion, by and large. Yep. It's that we're funding it. It's legal. Yep. Sex slavery is not funded, and it's not legal in our government. Abortion is. Yep, and we're not there. They're, nobody's singing songs in support of sex slavery. They're not making movies no. in support of sex slavery. They're not. The, the culture is not on the side of sex slavery the same way that it is here. There is not a, right. an ideological drive to 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 form the next generation. There are not people coming into, and I talk to college students at high levels. There are not people coming into their classrooms teaching them lessons that are meant to undermine their authority to stand against sex slavery. Everybody yeah. is in agreement on that it's a bad. They're trying to figure out how to fight it. In this particular case, we can't even convince everybody that it's wrong. And that's the thing that we have to do. We have to keep them on this issue. Yeah. I can agree that other things are bad, but let's talk about this bad thing right now. That's what we're talking about. And, and, and the other side did this. I'm sorry, I mean, but the no, other side ahead. did this when we're talking about, um, we want to talk about the other side, but you saw this during the Black Lives Matter movement. When, when people would respond, all lives matter, people who were focused on that issue right now said, I agree with you that all lives matter, but right now we're talking about black lives. So get back on the point. It's not a an yeah. unheard of approach to how we discuss these things. That's a nope. perfectly legitimate way to approach it. Say, okay, I, I agree with you that all lives matter, but today we're talking about black lives. And the same thing here. That's right. I agree with you. All these issues are an issue that we want to address, but today we're talking about this issue. So stay on this issue and stop trying to distract from it. Well, and I think it's fair to also ask critics, what other issue carries the moral weight of yep. millions of lives taken? I mean, the numbers in abortion are are the Holocaust times 10, just here in the US. Yep. Uh, what other issue carries that moral gravity to it? Tell me what it is. Yeah, I agree. These other issues are bad, but pro-lifers are not bad to give greater weight to the greater moral issue. World Health Organization, I think a couple of years ago, had the the total of annual abortions around the world at 40 to 50 million. And I had a I had a young man who, who approached me at one of the schools where I was speaking and he said, this actually during Q&A, stood up and he said, I, I, I agree with you that abortion is wrong, but when I vote, I vote on a lot of different issues. And I, yeah. And, and, I said, okay, well, let me, let me ask you. It says, if we're going to have this conversation, listen, I will be respectful about it. My main issue is somewhere around 1 million plus human lives lost in the United States every year, destroyed through the act of abortion, somewhere between 40 to 50 million around the world every year. The intentional destruction of human life on the scale of tens of millions every year worldwide. That's number one. What's your second issue? Yeah, there you go. So what what, yeah. what is your morally balancing issue? So just yeah, and, and he's he's had nothing. He just looked at me and said, "I don't know what I'm supposed to say in response to that." That's the point. There's a yeah. moral urgency with the destruction of human life that isn't present in those other issues, and so it's not illegitimate for it to rise to the level of importance that it has to be dealt with first, because we're destroying life, as you said, on an unimaginable, incalculable scale. Well, the number of abortions in the U.S. alone is Yankee Stadium filled 13 times over annually. Yeah. If you want to put a, you know, an image on this, this is horrific. And I get it. Okay, somebody not getting a, a big enough paycheck might be an injustice, but you're going to tell me that's morally equivalent to a baby having its face ripped off? 
uh, these two do not equal, they're not sequenced. And this is where our Catholic friends can help us out as Protestant evangelicals, Jay. Uh, I know you and I like to dabble in reading people who do good moral theology and philosophy, and our yeah. Catholic friends have perfected a lot of this. They make a very good distinction between intrinsic evils that must always be opposed and what we call prudential evils that may be wrong depending yeah. on the circumstances. For example, war is a prudential evil. It may be wrong, whether it's a just or unjust war, and you have to look at the factors involved. But rape and murder are wrong on the face of it and must always be opposed. They are intrinsic evils that can never be tolerated. And what people love to do today is lump intrinsic evils with prudential evils into one big stew and say, well, I'm pro-life on these prudential evils so we can overlook how I vote on an intrinsic evil. And that mm. just won't work. There's not equal moral weight there. Yep. And some some offense, that's a, that's the clarity of that argument is that some offenses are just wrong by nature. Yes. There's nothing you can do to justify it. There will be no moral calculation that can be brought to bear that will make this okay. There are certain right. circumstances where there are things that we can do where there is a context within them that changes how we morally evaluate them. And then there's other things that by their very nature are wrong to do to another human being. And there is no calculus, no context, nothing you're going to add to this that's going to make it okay. And it's, it's yeah. important for people to know that those are, that we evaluate those two types of things differently. There are times, and, and that's one of the things we've talked about, even in just the idea when I said homicide, there are justifiable homicide. There's situations where you can kill another human being where the context of it has made it so that it's understandable. If I walked in and a person in my daughter's room last night and, and I heard something and I walked in and someone was over her trying to hurt her, actively hurting my daughter, and I attacked them, and as a result of that, they died in that, the law would evaluate that differently than if I had hunted down that same person unprovoked and killed them. Those are two entirely different ways of understanding. Entirely it. different. Exactly. The idea that abortion can be justified in those terms is 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 not in the Catholic teaching is not possible. This is an intrinsically no. evil act. This is an innocent life that is being destroyed. And even our opponents, as Kate Greasley, I've talked about a lot, uh, pro-choice scholar, even when she talks about if you accept the humanity of the unborn, if you grant the humanity of the unborn, however many harms may be allayed that the homeborn may cause a woman through the act of pregnancy. It does not act purport. It does not reach proportional level to destroying their life to prevent those harms. That's that, correct. That if they are human, then they have to be treated as human, and then the abortion has to be treated as justifiable homicide. And there's nothing that they're doing that justifies killing them, killing them in the way that we do through the practice of abortion. So she's well, saying, to, to further cash that. out this prudential versus intrinsic evil, a general in a just war can foresee the deaths of innocent human beings. Yes, And we understand that he is still justified prosecuting a just war to bring it to a conclusion as quickly as possible, even though he foresees the deaths of innocent civilians. But the difference is he doesn't intend their deaths. That's right. With abortion, we both foresee the death of the unborn and we intend it. And what the Catholic teaching is trying to convey to us here is that when you intend evil, you are in territory that is very different than the people who foresee it but don't intend it. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it, there. There is one point for an abortion. Every every successful abortion is the destruction of an innocent human life. Every single one of them. So, which is why we define it as the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And this leads us to a point that you and I have discussed. I'm kind of jumping back to to 
to statement number one here, but it's worth it to do it. You and I don't call abortion murder, and there's reasons why we don't call it murder. Because murder is understood in the secular culture as a strictly legal term. And because abortion is not illegal, when we say abortion is murder, we now have another thing we have to defend. We not only have to defend that abortion is wrong and immoral and evil, we now have to defend that abortion should be called murder when it's in fact legal in our culture. And to avoid that complexity, it's better to just stick to calling abortion the intentional killing of an innocent human being. It is an evil in its own category. We don't have to bring the term murder in and have further work for ourselves. And that that's that's an important point because when I've talked to some people, they they initially when I said that, that I don't, if you notice when I'm talking in front of audiences, I don't use the term murder. I don't use right. the term murder, not because I don't believe in the evil of abortion, but because I understand the loaded nature of that term and what it adds to the discussion and 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 the confusion that it can add. Because I could say that I believe that abortion is murder in the terms of, of the Ten Commandments and that it's in a destruction of innocent human life. But when you talk about murder legally, as you said, it comes with a whole lot of commitments that, that I feel like confuse the discussion on this issue as we're trying to apply it to the United States today. And so when I say, it's like, let's talk about abortion as abortion right now. Let's figure out how to deal with abortion as the unjust destruction of innocent human life, as the intentional killing of an innocent human life. Let's talk about abortion as abortion right now. And let's not muddy the water with terms that come from, that you may mean morally, you may mean it legally. I don't understand what you're talking about. And it just confuses the discussion. Here's one of the things that, that I have tried to teach my kids over the years. Language at its best ought to be clarifying. We, when, we, when we speak, if we're using language correctly, it ought to be clarifying. Anytime we're intentionally confusing issues with the way that we use language, then we're, we're using language for, in my sense, illegitimate purposes. If the intention is to, be, uh, to befuddle our audience with clever use of language that they can't understand, that's a problem. If I'm using language yep. to be as clear as I possibly can, to have a, a clear understanding of what the subject matter is at hand, what is the issue at hand, then for me, that's why I leave murder aside when I'm discussing abortion, because I want clarity. I want focus. I want us talking about this one thing, this one act. I don't want us getting distracted about anything else. Let's talk about abortion as abortion. And this is where our colleague Greg Cunningham makes a great point. He says, for too long, the pro-life movement has been shouting conclusions rather than establishing facts and arguments. When we show pictures of abortion, as Greg says, abortion protests itself. When we shout out the term murder, the culture goes, wait, abortion is legal. How can you say it's murder? Now we have to go back and do more work that we shouldn't have to do. Show the pictures and talk about abortion being unjust killing and you establish facts. Yeah, and another important point to that, by the way, that I've noticed is that when you shout abortion is murder, it's not just the idea of them trying to marry that term with the act of abortion. What they're often hearing is you're calling my sister a murderer. You're calling my best friend a murderer. You're calling someone that I deeply love a murderer. And that's going to be a limiter for the ability for them to to track with you for the rest of the conversation. Because you're trying to win them over with a good argument to a view that is more affirming of the value of human life. But now they are stuck on your, the way that you're categorized, their, their friend, the person they, who they like so much better than you. I mean, they don't like you at all and they love this person. And now you're casting that person in the worst imaginable light. They're never coming with you. They're never going to get on this side. And 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 when I pointed this out to a pastor friend of mine who used to be 
an ally on this issue, but has gone full-blown abolitionist now. He says, well, you just don't trust the sufficiency of scripture. You want to use man-made arguments rather than use what the Bible calls abortion murder. Well, first of all, where in the Bible does it say exactly abortion is murder? That is a deductive conclusion we draw, not something that's stated outright. But that aside, how does it follow that because I want to be wise in how I interact with people that I have a low view of the sufficiency of Scripture? But that seems to be the argument we're getting. That's right. And there we have to win them over to our side to get things done. I talked on an earlier on an episode, I think that's going to air next week. Uh, I talked about a a college professor who came into a class and was saying because of Dobbs versus Jackson, women were going to lose the right to vote. And when, and one of the things that I objected to that when I was answering it was in order for women to lose the right to vote, women would have to vote themselves out of the right to vote. The way, the way that it works when you're talking about constitutional amendments, you have to get them on your side in order to take that away. This won't be taken away by sheer force of judicial decisions. That's a, that's a constitutional issue. And in the same thing here, right? If we're going to stop abortion, it's not going to be done by judicial fiat. It's not going to be done by the force of the government. It can help limit abortion, but to limit it as much as possible, we have to convince human beings to not kill the next generation before they're born. That's right. We have to cultivate a society where people are convinced that that is the wrong way to treat human life prior to its birth. And, and that, so that means that affects the way that we try to reach them. And if we decide that we are going to cast them as the bad guys and we're the good guys, we're going to come at this from some ideologically pure position where we hold our ground on the issue of murder. All we're going to do is turn them away because they like their friends who have gotten abortions more than they like us. And well, we Jay, you just murders, have a low view of scripture. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I, 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 know, you know, really, I, I can be difficult you, to get along with sometimes. <laughs> you know, actually, I think our position is actually more biblical in this sense. We aren't limiting God. God has given us yeah. two ways to restrain evil in the culture, people coming to Christ and having their hearts changed through the new birth. But that's not the only way they we can limit evil. God has given us civil law to restrain the heartless, those whose hearts won't be changed by the gospel. And if you read scripture, the number of people who are going to be saved is not huge, it's small. Yep. Narrow is the gate, which means we're going to need a lot of secular people who may not ever become Christians to agree with us on the pro-life view that abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And we've got to persuade those people outside the bounds of Scripture. And that is a criticism that I have heard leveled at us, and particularly me in a conversation with somebody who said, it's more important that they find Jesus than they become pro-life. And it's, well, in the the long-term sense, I understand that for that individual, it is more important to them. Number one, I said, I don't believe that promoting a high view of the value of human life into the into the life of someone who holds a low view of human life is in any way drawing them away from the gospel. I actually believe it's a step towards it. Uh, it's recognizing yes. that there's things that we can't do to other human beings because human beings are the kind of thing that ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And there's going to be conversations that are started, as Tina Whittington and I have talked about at Students for Life, where she uses the term, the, the pro-life argument is a gateway drug for the gospel. So number one, I, I don't see it as antithetical to preaching the gospel, to preach a higher value of human life into our culture, which sees it as something disposable right now on multiple levels. And, and number two, you know, if he's like, all you're going to end up with is a pro-life person who doesn't know Christ. As you just said, I'm not of the view that every American's going to ultimately come to know Christ. I hope that right. they do. I wish that they would, but at some point or another, I need them to just stop killing their kids before they're born. 
And, and if, yeah. if that's a step in the right direction for me, right? I mean, that's a movement into the direction that we need. Now, if you want to discuss why you shouldn't be doing it, we can get to greater, more in-depth grounding issues that will lead us towards a gospel conversation. But I don't think that I am doing a disservice to the Bible. And, and that's, what I, that's that, what I find particularly frustrating. Because I asked him, I was like, have you ever read the book 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians? Like, go, go read those back to back. And you will find that Paul makes historical arguments. He makes epistemological arguments. He makes ontological arguments. He doesn't appeal to scripture, like New Testament scripture, because there was no New Testament for scripture for him to appeal to. That's right. He appeals to the reason of the believer to be able to see the truth of God and Christ in their life so that they might find right behavior and right or, and orient themselves correctly towards the Father through the Son. And he doesn't just avail himself of what was written in order for him to get there. He avails himself of the rational capacities of the audience that he's reaching. And so if you can prove that by talking about these things that I'm doing something anti-biblical, I'm open. Talk to me. But if I'm right. not, then then I don't believe that I'm doing something wrong if you can't demonstrate that it's wrong biblically by appealing to the full nature of human beings. And that includes their rational capacity to bring them to a more moral position with their fellow man. Uh, well, I don't this, see how that's wrong. Yeah, it's not. And it leads to all kinds of confusion, including what we see from a guy who I like in a lot of ways, Tim Keller. Tim Keller has written a great book called The Reason for God. I really like it. But Tim Keller's view on abortion is pathetic. He he says it's wrong, says it's a double injustice, in fact, but he won't preach on it because he doesn't want to turn people away who otherwise might respond to the gospel. And he gives this example of a woman, an ACLU attorney, who visited his church in New York, and she said to him several months later, if I had shown up that first day and seen any pro-life literature, I would have left and never come back. And he says, see, this is what we need to do. We need to just preach the gospel rather than promote moralism and let people evolve toward the right view. Okay, I'm glad she finally came around to the right view and said, I'm beginning to see that abortion is wrong. I'm glad she's come to that. But are we to say that clerical silence in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism? I mean, this is scary stuff, Jay. And getting them to be Christians, by the way, doesn't guarantee that they're going to be pro-life. I mean, I know a lot of people no, identify doesn't. themselves as Christians who have, been, who have very cleverly drawn out this caveat here for them on this particular issue. And, and much like what you're saying, how Keller approaches it, and that idea that they want to they don't want to unnecessarily cause division. They don't want to upset people, that they're going to be at yeah. peace with everybody as much as possible. They appeal to those types of scriptures. Why, why would I want to distract people from the gospel by talking about this? Well, because... It matters, right? I mean, and I, I, I think uh, Stanley Howarhouse's quote about in a hundred years, if we're known, if Christians are only known as the people who don't kill their children before they're born, or don't and don't kill their grandparents, or something like that, then we're doing good, we're doing well. We, but we ought to be known for something, right? I mean, we should we, be. We're countercultural by nature. That's one of the things I've had to talk to a couple of young college yeah. students recently. It's like, look, Christianity is countercultural by nature. We are at our best, by the way when culture starts to define itself away from us, because when culture tries to define itself in the pseudo Christian terms, it's easy for us to get lost in the flow and to, and to lose right. focus and sight of what we're supposed to do. When the culture embraces a worldview against us, then we are free to be what we are and what we are ought to be radically different in the world around us. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. I have no right. shame in being hated because I say, through the love of Christ, I have learned that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And I will fight for that first and foremost for the rest of my life, as long as God leads me on this planet. And if you don't like me because I fight for that, I'm good. We'll, we're going to be good. okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can live with that. 
And uh, I'm totally with you that teaching accurately on the pro-life issue opens the gate to gospel conversations. We've seen it happen experientially countless times. Once you establish with someone that there is such a thing as moral evil and showing pictures of abortion can help you do that, then you raise the question of, wait a minute, have I committed moral evil? And if so, should I be punished for it? And of course, any honest person would say, yes, well, we're right there. We're at the threshold of the gospel because yep. we have a solution to that moral evil found in the sacrifice of Christ. So this doesn't have to be an either or. It can be both and, but I am never going to apologize. I'm with you. If I'm known for, hey, I stuck up for human dignity at all stages of life, so be it. If I'm hated for that, that's a good reason to be hated. And the, and the great thing about the way you just phrased that is, is something that's always been important to me is that when, when I became a Christian later in life, and one of the things I always found shocking was how many people who are within the body of Christ see it as an us-them paradigm. It's us and it's them. And, and, they, and I've never struggled with that, I guess, because of the way I came to Christ. There was always a sense for me, no, it's him and it's all of us. It, it, he is on the side of righteousness and this, all the rest of us that are caught up in this mess and we are redeemed through him, but, but I can never see myself outside of through him as something different than them. When I'm trying to reach somebody who disagrees with me on the issue of abortion, I have told audiences all over the country, I am trying to reach the guy that I was, the man that I was when I was younger. I am sensitive to the idea that I was so wrong about so many things most of my life. And I want somebody else to care about helping me get right. And you're not going to help them get right by making them the enemy to destroy through sheer force of prosecution and this idea of, uh, and, and, and going back to that's, that's the first point. And the second point being that idea uh, that we are, if we're not doing everything all at once, that we're somehow not addressing the value of human life. I have to I have to put forth this shield of moral moral purity in order to fight the issue of abortion. I will never be this side of heaven what God wants me to be. I'm aware of that. I'm trying hard, but I am a hard person for God to train and to reach. And I see that in my prayer life every night. And I think I'm okay. And then God gives me some wisdom and I see, oh my gosh, through scripture and, and, and study, I am way off from where I need to be. But if I can't wait for myself to be pure before I start fighting for the people around me, that's just a terrible nope. way to progress through this. There are some things that just have to be opposed and they have to be opposed whether I am, I don't believe I'm the right guy in the sense that when I look at things and I say, should people trust me the way that they do? Should they invite me in to speak in front of their schools? Should they do me? I don't believe I am some elevated human being that has a view of the world in which I should be trusted the way that they do. And because I believe that about myself, I make sure that what I'm saying accords with both scripture and the truth as much as possible. And I try to limit what I, the cases that I make. And the, I, I don't, there's all sorts of things that I believe that I'm not going to share in front of an audience. But one thing that I will never stop sharing is that every human being ought to be treated with dignity and respect. I don't have to be pure to make that case. I just have no. to be right. Yep, exactly right. Well, third idea, and this one's going to be a free for all because I'm just going to toss the concept out there and not say a lot about it. So we're going right. to... Go wherever you want to go with this. Human rights require human beings. And here's what's spurring this on. We're seeing more and more talk about the whole transhumanist movement. Yes. The idea that we can jettison the race forward to its next stage of evolutionary development and we can become better than we are, a new and improved version. 
And the worldview idling behind this is the view that progress is always good. And we don't need to ask the questions, what are human beings by nature and what ought we do? It doesn't matter. We just go with the science and propel forward. And the argument I want to make is this. If you have no fixed definition of what it means to be human, the fixed rights that flow from that human nature are also not observable and are not, uh, you know, we can't apply them. If human nature is not fixed, the rights that spring from it aren't fixed either, which means you can't have natural human rights or fundamental human rights unless you have an objective definition of what it means to be human. And we're doing all of our biotechnology, all our talk of advancing the race without asking the questions, what do we mean by better and what does it mean to be human? We're just going forward without the moral constraints, thinking that we're going to make ourselves better, but we're cutting out from underneath us the very ground of our own rights when we say that human nature is not fixed. Yeah, and, and there's such a, it's, you know, we just recently, many of the, the leaders and uh, as far as the production of AI or the, or in the, pr the production of technology asked for a more signed a, a document asking for a moratorium on the pursuit of these higher level AI chat bots and things that are being, a, that are being developed saying, stop, just hold up for a second because we don't know how this ends. I was reading Nick Bostrom uh, yesterday, a book called yeah. super intelligence. And he was talking in that book about like, we'd have no idea what the end result of all of this is as we advance towards it. One of the things I have always found interesting is that if you are a human being, and I agree with you, the, the fixed nature, if you are a human being and, you're, and you are actively looking to displace humanity with something else, one of the things I find odd about it is that you won't be on the other side of that. There, there's, there's this sense of, oh, if I can, and Ray Kurzweil, I think, has a representative of this in his transhumanist writing, where he, he has this sense that, if I can take this human being that I am and augment them to these levels uh, with, with a digital mind or download myself and to live eternally, if, if human beings are a fixed nature, if we have a fixed nature, then Ray Kurzweil, as he understands himself, will not survive that transition. Whatever it is, it won't become, be a human anymore. It won't be, it won't be a human and it won't be Ray Kurzweil. There's no meaningful way right. to say that he extends for eternity. Some program does, uh, some data stream does, but it won't be him. And and right. I, I had a conversation, I mean, a decade and a half ago now with a guy at Georgia Tech that was working in a lab that was putting these things together. And I said, look, you're, here's the thing. You're betting on that your view of human nature is the correct view of human nature. And he has, you have a low view of human nature. There's no human nature. There's no such thing as humanity. All things are transitional animals. And you just want to see the transition to the next thing. You, they're, they're, um, you're in love with the idea that for the first time in history, there's an animal in existence that is capable of facilitating its evolutionary advancement on its own rational capacities. And then they don't have to wait for the environmental pressures that require everything up the millions of years under the worldview that we're talking about here. Listen, right. but, but if you succeed and if I'm right, so let's just say for the sake of argument, that there's such a thing as human nature, not just that there's such a thing as a spiritual ex existence and that spiritual existence is tied towards God. And even beyond that, let's say that Romans chapter three is an accurate representation of man separated from God. So that in this humanity, I am somehow in tension between what God wants me to be and what I am. And that there's an active grace that exists around us, not just the the salvation grace, but an active spiritual grace that is, that is fighting and resisting my evil nature is best to draw me away from it and to empower me to be something that I'm not. 
and you create everything that it means to be a human being without that relationship. And they are immediately at that downloading moment have capacities that no human being has ever had before. And this is where you get into a lot. And there are many writings about this, the malevolent program, this, this AI that comes into existence and is immediately malevolent uh, because it has no, no operational boundaries that we can place on it. And, and one of the greatest AI minds on the planet, which just, just published an article about this recently, where he said, what we have is the ability to advance AI without the ability to, to control it, without to give it to parameters, without the ability to, to ultimately morally, and he doesn't use those terms, but that's what he's talking about, to give it moral boundaries, to give it morality. We're playing God without well, yeah. the ability to be able to make moral creatures. Uh, and and, and, and this that is, is where this is where Christians got to wake up. AI is here. It's not going away. Yeah, We're not going to dial it back. And I don't care how many letters Elon Musk yep. signs or what Nick Bostrom says about how we can have parameters. We cannot. It's here. Yep. The question is, is it going to be tethered to any kind of moral principle? And that's really hard to account for in a worldview that says there can't be objective morality. Yep. The AI worldview. Right? Yeah. When you have a, a, nat, a naturalistic worldview that's idling behind this technology and driving the idea that humans can reinvent themselves in the next evolutionary step forward, we don't have a basis or an oughtness for saying we ought to tether this to morals. What morals? Yep. Yeah, Morality is what you, you can do. And you don't have any appreciation. We've talked about this before. We did that at the virtual, the summit virtual event where we talked about the idea that if you have a low view of humanity, if humanity is just something to be overcome, then there's nothing about us that you want to take into that next iteration because all you're trying to do is get beyond it. But right. as you, if you said, if understanding who and what we are is, is, is tied to this nature as human beings. And if we abandon that, if we, if we lose it without having the ability to, to, as you said, to give any moral reference or frame of reference for how we exist, how we get along with the person next to us, how we treat each other, it's it's a complete abandonment of humanity that they're talking about. There's nothing about this that is the improvement of humanity. Transhumanism and posthumanism is about getting beyond humanity. Uh, and because of that's that, right. and that's driven by a very low view of what it means to be a human being. So you're, to your point, that in order to have human rights, you have to have human beings. That's an important point for people to, to think about or to consider in the sense that, and that's one of the things that I've talked to about with naturalists who've brought these objections up when they talk about the pro-life position, when they will say to me, why? What if I don't believe in all the things that you do about what it means to be a human? Then I tell them, well, then you reduce humanity to just, you know, biological beings who exert their will through raw practice of political power. And you have no moral justification for restricting my efforts to try to spread the pro-life view. Whether you think it's correct or not is irrelevant at that point, because there is no right. ought. There is nothing about our existence that requires us to, to, to treat each other in any particular way. I have no duties or responsibilities to you whatsoever in that worldview. And you have no principled way of opposing the views that I'm arguing for. If one of us wins and one of us loses, it's just a, an, a you know, it's just one of those things that the happens. Of the fittest. That's right. It just yeah. happened. Yeah, that's right. And we end up being ruled not by benevolent people. We get ruled by technocrats and politicians who have embraced functionalism as their view of human dignity. Yep. And, and, and means the next step can't be controlled either, right? I mean, they're, they're in the sense of, like you said, it's here, it's moving forward. And, and I think that is the one point that Bostrom made, and multiple people, not just Bostrom, but multiple people have made about it, is that the, the, what's going to happen is impossible to predict. 
because we have no control of it. Once it, once it gets out of our control and it moves on uh, from that, then we we have no idea where it's going. He says it'll either be really good or really bad. And he thinks everybody that thinks in between is just kidding themselves. I mean, it's either going to be great for humanity or it's going to be the end of humanity, but there's going to be very little, you know, in between there, between the two of them, but you can't, you can't have that low view of human nature and human life. And at the same time have moral opposition to, um, to what people are advocating for or arguing for. You're abandoning humanity. You don't see humanity as anything worthwhile saving anyway. And and that no. to me is such a low view of human. That leads to the kind of things that we see around us. Uh, not not just in the idea of the abandonment of humanity through transhumanism, but using embryos as a means, human embryos, nascent human life, being resourced as a way of improving life for more mature human beings around them. Uh, as if, you know, early human life were nothing different than an apple or an orange or anything else. Research we can for fodder. Nature. Research like fodder for research and for us to be able to improve yeah. ourselves. Uh, yeah. It's an, and then the end of life issues that we get into where we look at people as they get older as impediments to our pursuit of our happiness in life. Uh, and so we well, resource get a guy like there. David Pierce that argues that parents should have the ability to choose the enhancement features of their children. Yeah. Uh, children are not gifts we receive. They are commodities we construct for our own fulfillment. And they're not individuals to be respected. They, no. they, they live for us. And you see that in so many different ways already in our culture, whereas I have grown up with kids who are very active in sports and you have, you had sons play football, right? You know, when you stand on the sidelines, a difference between somebody that is a parent who is just loves watching their kid flourish and have fun in pursuit of physical excellence on a field and some other parent where that child is serving some purpose for them. That they, yeah. that, and, and the way that they see that, that child doesn't exist as an entity in and of itself. It is in some way an extension of that individual and their will, their will is being poured out into life for this kid who is just miserable. Now I can remember my son having to comfort other players on the field in lacrosse because their fathers were just following them up and down the field, screaming at them because their kid wasn't an individual human being that was enjoying this sport and having fun playing it. What they were was an extension of some lost dream of the father. And, and, yep. and, and so when you lose that ability to see individual, when once we start commodifying human beings and we treat them like mini Coopers that I can go online and say, well, I would like blue eyes instead of brown and I would like darker skin instead of light and maybe blonde instead of brown hair and, and try to genetically structure them like they're a product that we're buying, then we have failed them already because they will that, that human being will never live in a world where they don't understand themselves as existing to satisfy the expectations of the generation that came before them. That's and, exactly and, it. That's this is what happens when we say bye bye to human nature, because now we're no longer judged by are we flourishing according to our nature? We're judged by the expectations of the technocrats and the politicians who will rule us based on their functionalist premises. And you were designed to make your parents look more impressive because my kid advanced farther and faster. I, I can remember. I mean, and we see that on lower levels all the time and that corruption working in when you're talking about even today. Like, I, I remember people bragging to me, well, my kids started walking at six months, eight months or whatever. It's like, you know, they're all going to be walking sooner or later for the most part. It's it's really not that big a deal, right? And, and the, the window that your kids started walking earlier is not that big a deal. But but nope. the, the kid is, exists to bring me glory. Uh, and, and, and so that's the only reason you would want to be able to, to, to design them that way so that they can satisfy your desires for what they're supposed to be. 
And there's a great book, and I will link it underneath this, where there's an argument that was written, and I, I wrote about this for Sarah J, about a, a pro-choice or secular argument for not killing children with Down syndrome before they're born. And what, what I thought was great about it, even though there was, there was obviously places where that author and I parted ways, what I thought was great was he had a chapter where he discusses the idea of one of the things that happens when you find out that your child has Down syndrome is you mourn what you thought they were going to be. You haven't lost anything. Your, your child is what they were. And that, that is all they're ever going to be. But you had an idea about what your child was going to be. And he even brings up this point. For most of it, too, it's not even just the loss of the ability to function in this world. There's a loss of something like a white-collar success story throughout all of this. That there was, there was going to be business or success or, or, or this idea of what my kid was going to be and how they were going to flourish at the highest levels. And when I found out that my child has Down syndrome, uh, what I found out was they would not be this elevated view of what I thought my kid was going to be. And he talks about the process of mourning that loss. And for him, who had a child with Down syndrome, coming to terms with what your child is versus what you wanted them to be. Uh, and, and the idea that we would destroy them for not being what we wanted them to be, to him and to all people who are reasonable, I think, on this particular issue is, is horrifying. But we see every parent, I think, struggle with that to some degree or another. Because our kid is who they are. And, they're, and they, as they grow and mature and get older and they express their individuality and we give them room to do so as parents, we let them to become the human being that they are, recognizing that we are given stewardship of them, not ownership of them, and they're not our property. They're individual human beings in and of themselves pursuing their own destiny in this world. Yep. It can be challenging, right? That's the part of the challenging part of parenthood is letting go and letting them. My dad, as a joke, and I'm going to turn it over to you again after I get done with this. No, my dad, you're good. My dad one time said, he, was, he said, I, I, wish, I hope cloning comes before I die because I want to be able to clone myself. And then he said, I want to leave them to you to force you to raise me. <laughs> and and, and uh. I laughed. I was like, dad, that's kind of a weird, like evil thing. So my dad and I had a lot of differences with each other. I said, I, I appreciate that. But you understand that even the clone of you wouldn't be you. It would be an individual human life that would exist that's from right. the moment that it comes into existence. And it would, it would interact with the world differently. And it would have different parents that you have and different siblings that you would have. And you would not be able to make a clone of yourself to continue your existence. If you made a clone of yourself, it would not be you. It would that be view only works on a naturalistic worldview that says we are nothing more than synapse firings and yep. biochemistry and physics in the brain. Yeah, that, that we, can, we can make ourselves something. And, and as long as I can just pattern, make a new pattern. But even there, yep. you see the naturalists resist that. Because I, I think you can go back to Stephen Gould's writings about how he thought about um, what he called uh, punctuated equilibrium or the jerk theory yeah. of evolution. And he said, if you roll the tape back to a certain point and then start it over again, it will never go forward the way that it did the last time. If no matter how many times you roll it back, if you're able to roll it back, it will never go forward. And I do think that there's something there to be taken from that way of thinking into understanding human beings. Even if we chart, like you said, the synapses, the grooves, if we, if we go through and we're able to map out a human brain as it exists today, my brain, and then we were able to duplicate that or replicate that into another body, it's still, from the moment that you press go or press play on the tape, it doesn't play out the same way because nope. it is still as we understand it, a unique human life 
uh, that exists in its own right and has its own nature and will pursue things differently based on the environmental it finds itself in and the people that's involved in. And, and yeah. You know, I have to chuckle at, at the gigantic conflict that is brewing on the secular side of the ledger. On one hand, we have a very dominant naturalistic worldview that says we are nothing but genes and biology. On the other hand, we have the whole body self-dualism, philosophical, yeah. metaphysical view that says I am not my body. I am my thoughts and my desires, which are inherently immaterial. And so now you have one worldview saying your identity is wrapped up in physics and chemistry. You have another worldview saying, no, it's wrapped up in my desires, principally my sexual desires, and that my identity is grounded yeah. in that. And these two worldviews are going to end up having it out. They're going to end up duking it out. It's going to be a fun fight for us as Christians to watch. And there's a there is a point where right now there there's some cooperation there because as one person said any stick is a good stick to beat Christians with right and so there's a sense for them that there is some cooperation because we're working against uh, a common enemy but you're right that I actually did a three college tour on um in the fall last year and that was the thing that I one of the things I talked about what you just discussed exactly the idea of there's a view of human beings that were meat machines uh, and and what it entails there. That there, there is no such thing as mindedness. There is no mind. There is no spiritual aspect of human beings. We are just, we're machines. living in a world, machines that live and we react to the physical world around us. We, we're determined. We're biologically determined beings. And then you have the, that psychosexual view of human beings where I am what I think I am. And that's all that really matters. What I am psychologically is my true identity. I am only that. And my body has nothing to say about that, which in and of it's itself mere is mere matter in motion. That's right. And and and, yeah. I, and I can will or I will over that uh, over my biological system what I actually am and and everything has to to come to bear that comes to, that has to agree with that or that view of myself and that well not only do you have to express that everyone around you has to affirm it or they are objectively evil yeah and uh, so you have a new objective moral principle and is thou shalt affirm me no matter what um, yeah. And that, that view, that conflict that is coming is going to be very interesting to see how that plays out because you cannot have it both be true that I am my body and I am my mind only. One of those two is, and this is where the Christian worldview is so superior. We can see human beings as a dynamic union of body yep. and soul. We're not one or the other. And it makes sense of even when you talk about individuals who are Genuinely struggling, struggling with dysmorphia, that doesn't make any sense under the view that I am only what I consider myself to be or believe myself to be. But it does make sense in this dynamic union between the two, because if there's a tension between how I understand myself and the body that I'm in, then I recognize that they both are realities that must be dealt with. And the tension right. comes from those two being opposed to each other, that that tension has to be settled or resolved in some way. If I am only yeah. what I believe myself to be, what I am materially doesn't matter anyway. And so the doesn't matter that, that, they, that, that we hear about doesn't come to, doesn't have, that shouldn't matter at all. Because if I, all I am is what I am here, then what I am here as far as biologically doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter what way I express myself because I exist psychologically as something. And that's the real thing, not this body. The only way that tension that we hear expressed in, in, in extreme ways, we talk about people who kill themselves because they can't resolve this tension. Makes any sense is if both matter, if they're both yeah. important. That's the only way that that makes any sense. 
Exactly right. I, and of the two, I actually think the latter one is getting getting more dominant. Yes. The body self dualism is now the more dominant view. What Carl Truman calls expressive individualism. I am who I decide I am, and my identity is wrapped up in my desires, and my body has no intrinsic purposes, and I am not accountable to fulfill any of those intrinsic purposes. It's mere fodder for me to reach, you know, manipulate any way I want. The real me is my thoughts, my desires. Yep. And the tension that between those parties, it, it goes back to that idea of that every, every society has to have an organizing, a shared organizing principle. Uh, and, right. and, and we don't really have one any longer no, <laughs> and, and, and it will have to be fought out in order to sustain any workable society. I, you know, I said that years ago when certain things were going on and I was asked during a Q and a about some of those things, like, look, there, I, I, I hear these celebrations of the people who have a different understanding of what it means to be human going on. And I get why they're happy and what they think they're going to ultimately get out of this. The problem is that a society built upon the principles that they're trying to build it on just cannot sustain itself. It, it just it it's cannot. Just, There's no shared fixed standard for, for human beings or the rights that flow from our nature. That's right. And sooner or later, they'll come back. Sooner or later, they're going to have to come back. If they want to have a, a, yep. a lasting society or something that can endure through any kind of time, something that has some sort of stability, they're going to have to come back to first principles. They always do. And by the way, we, we should have learned our lesson with the French Revolution, which sought to throw off all front or first principles. Everybody yep. that initiated that revolution went to the guillotine yep. from Robespierre on. And the, these things consume themselves. The question left is for us is will we be around when it does that's right yeah and to step and to sometimes just step back and let them go after each other a little bit and and not try to get mixed in where i have no that, that's the great thing about going back to i think having a focus on what we've talked about today in the sense of the value of human life this is this this all ends up being pretty simple for me when i wake up in the morning and setting aside just my commitments to christ which is, i can't really fully ever set them aside but just understanding in the sense that I wake up in the morning and I have one idea that fixates me, how we treat each other as human beings. And that, right. that one of the things that led me to, to God through all of that out of my atheism into Christianity was dealing with the idea that there are things that we can do to one another that are wrong. I, yeah. I, I didn't know that there was anything right. That was not the first thing that I came to. I didn't initially think that is the right, we should nurture each other. We should love each other. We should take care of each other. That wasn't my first realization. What I knew all the way through my soul was that there are things that we could do to one another that were wrong. That was obvious to me. It was more obvious to me that there were wrong things that we could do, to, objectively wrong things that we can do to other human beings than anything else was in the world around me. I knew that more than I knew anything. Other human beings yeah. shouldn't be treated like that in this situation or like that in that situation which ultimately leads us back to the, the discussion of abortion and why it's easy for me to stay on task when we have these distracting conversations with people and all the distractions you brought up today when they come to bear on the conversation. It, for me, it's easy. Abortion is an action against another human life, and I'm just trying to convince as many people as possible to stop doing that action so that we can save what lives we can save. I understand that That's we will right. never live in a perfect world. I understand that we will never be able to address all the things that we need to, be able to address in this world. I understand that I will never be the perfect vessel for that message, but at least I have found something that I can sleep at night. When I go to bed, what did we do today? We went out and we tried to convince as many people as possible to treat other human beings with dignity and respect. 
Uh, and that's, yeah. that is the place where we can agree on a foundational beginning of how we build a society. You treat me with dignity and respect, and I'll treat you with dignity and respect. And I understand that an inclusive view of human value, which Christopher Kayser likes to use that term, and I think Nancy Pierce uses as well, a, a, an inclusive view of human value. I understand that an inclusive view of human value is going to bring to bear some tough situations where we have to endure things for the sake of the other people around us. I get that, but it's a yeah. better view of human beings for all of us as far as going forward and building the world around us. Well, if the Nazis put a gun to your head and say, shoot your mother through the brain or we shoot you, you endure the evil rather than inflict it. And that's yeah, right. that's a choice, but you don't have a third alternative at that moment. You either are going to suffer evil or perpetrate it. That's right. And you of human dignity certainly will have some hard to swallow moments, but you're right. It is a better worldview than the one that says anything goes here with how we treat humans. And enduring and suffering for the purpose of communicating the message of the value of human life is what gives that message power to endure to the next generation. That's right. It's, it's not just clever arguments and it's not just the way that we phrase things. It's when, when they talk about if you're inconsistent, you're, you're not, it, it, I agree with that, right? The incons inconsistency is not a defeat for defeater for our argument, but we do also have to recognize that the choices that we make during life communicate everything to the world around us. I mean, that's a they very do. Christian perspective. And so when they, I think that when they say you're being inconsistent because you're not solving every problem, like I'm being completely consistent. I recognize that I couldn't possibly solve every problem. And when I recognize one problem is morally, more morally urgent than others, I devoted as much as my spirit to it as I possibly can, even when that means not being with my family, who I love far more than everybody else I have to go talk to. And so yeah. my life demonstrates at least hopefully the importance of the value of other human beings in it particularly since I am focusing on the most urgent question right now, because this That's is the right. one area where I know we are killing millions of human lives every year. And we have to get this one. We right. have to focus on these intrinsic evils. They take right. precedent over other things. And uh, there is no other evil. I love the question you put to that student. Okay, what's the other issue that should be second, you know, here? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a very good thought-provoking question. It forces them to understand that not all evils are the same. And Christians fall into this too, Jay, because they say, well, sin is sin. The Bible does not teach that all sin is morally equivalent. It that's does right. teach that we all have the same human nature that is a sinful nature. We share that in common, but the acts that spring from that sinful nature are not morally equivalent. There is a difference between stealing a pencil and shooting you through the head just because it's fun. That's right. Not yeah. that it would be fun. When they but say all you get sin the idea. is equal, right? They say, they'll talk here all the time. All sin is equal. It's all sin. It's, but the, all of it is equal in one way. It's, it's sufficient to condemn me or to judge me. Right. But it's, it's not really equal. You can't honestly believe that lying to your mom about where you were yesterday is equal to the genocide of Jews through Hitler's Nazi Germany. Those are or not shooting your mother because you don't like the question she asked you. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Nobody believes that, right? I mean, nobody no. genuinely believes that. It's just a rhetorical point to try to, and oftentimes it's, it's meant to try to give us room to do the things that we want to do. Most of the most of the most confusing conversations I get into are people just trying to excuse things that they want to be able to do within a that they know that they shouldn't, or right, that gonna, they don't want to have to talk about. And they yes. want to relieve themselves of responsibility. Well, sin is sin. I don't need to talk about abortion. I really ought to be focused on, you know, just helping people get saved because all sin is equivalent. Well, yeah. that, that doesn't work.
I'm going to give you the last word in a second here, but I want to say one more thing on why what you just said, because I get it. I get what they're saying. I get why they don't want to talk about it. And this is why I say I get it. Because for the first, I don't know, um, 10 years of my Christian life, I was able to be positionally pro-life as I moved towards away from being pro-choice as an atheist and a Christian. I, I started adopted personally holding to pro-life views, but it was when I confronted it, when I had all of it in front of me and I was forced to confront it, that I became convicted that this issue required more of me as a moral human being than I was giving it. So yeah. I, I and, and that conviction did not make my life easier. It made my life better, but not easier. And I yeah. understand the person that is standing in front of me that under, there's a reason why one of the first prayers I ever said as a Christian, when I became a Christian was God, I don't ever want to talk about abortion because the second I became a Christian, I was smart enough to realize that human beings were not what I thought they were when I was an atheist. And that issue may become something I don't want to have to look at. I don't, I don't want the, the accountability that's going to hit me when I stop and reflect on that issue. And for people right. who are, are personally or positionally pro-life, I understand why they don't want this in front of them. Because when it was in front of me, in all of the gory details, when I, had, when I finally put it on a table and read about it and considered it and thought about it, I was faced with a realization that if I genuinely believe human life has value from the moment it comes into existence, and what's happening to the unborn is happening in the world around me, I have to do something more than what I'm doing. If I want to consider myself a moral agent in this world, I cannot allow what's happening in the world to happen around me without saying and doing more to try to stand against right. it. Morality and requires me to do something more. And so I get the hesitation for wanting to hear about it because they, I think that for many people, not everybody, but for many people, they probably intuitively understand that as long as they don't have to look at it, they can excuse themselves for not having to have a voice in it. And that if they're convicted of it, they're going to have to, to make some, some adjustments to the way that they live their life and approach this issue. And this is why the pro-abortion side fights the use of abortion imagery so strongly. They know that these images convey moral truths that people would rather not have to face up to. It's why you and I use these pictures. We're not manipulating people. We're using something that conveys truth better than words ever could. Yep. And Mark Harrington just recently was at a, a school, or his Create Equal group was at a school, and I can't remember if it was VCU. No, that wasn't because that was Kristen Hawkins. It was Marshall. He posted online they were Marshall. And, and the, the comments I thought were telling, when you say that, the, the images have power, right? When I read the comments after they posted some of the film and some of the pro-choice people from Marshall were, were commenting on his Instagram page, their comment was the, the, the pictures were fake. They were fake. That was the, the recurring comment, right? These are fake pictures. Yeah. Why do they have to insist they're fake? Because if they, if they admit the reality of them, they have to admit the brutality of it. They have to, exactly they have right. to come face to face. They're not saying that the pictures didn't move them. They're demanding, they're insisting that they're fake because if they're real, then even they have to recognize that this is something horrible that's happening. And of course, my comeback is always, what do real abortion pictures look like then? Yeah. And of course, yeah. they never have an answer. Yep. You know, okay, you, but yeah, you can, when you, when you can't no. defeat an argument, you dismiss it by calling yep. it a name fake. Yep. It's fake. It's fake. These can't possibly be real. You're trying to, you're trying to, right. to move our hearts with fake images. If, if your heart's yeah. being moved, it's because you recognize the evil of what you're seeing. 
And you're insisting it's fake because you don't want to come to terms with the reality of what it is, because that would mean we would have to change the way that we live our lives. This and is where what... tactically I love to walk around with this book, Abortion Practice by Warren Hearn. This is their hero, not mine. That's and right. he describes in excruciating detail how to dismember a living human fetus. And you've seen the material. You know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And uh, these are their guys being honest about it, not, not us faking anything. Abortionists tell on themselves, man, all the time. I've, I talked about that on two different episodes right now. The abortionists will tell on themselves. You, no matter how much you want to make them out to be some heroes of the abortion of the pro-choice view, they're going to tell on themselves. They're going to inform you yep. of what they actually are sooner or later. Just give them enough That's room right. to talk. Okay, you're, you get the last word here. Well, hey, I think I've uh, we've had a great conversation. And my, my last word is we got to get together and hang out some. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah, we got to get on that. I thank you so, so much for uh, coming on. Glad to be on, Jay. You're doing great work. Your knowledge is great. I appreciate having you in the trenches with us. I appreciate the moral clarity that you bring to things all the time. You, I, I, I hold to this. I think you are the best teacher of the pro-life position that I have ever seen. And, and I, I told you that when I first came to that realization. I'm so excited, by the way, the second edition of Scott's book, The Case for Life, is coming out soon. So be look, go to Amazon, pre-order it. It's not out yet, right? It won't be out till August 2nd. Okay, and that's August because 2nd. the author delayed getting his revisions done on time. <laughs> oh, Today I have learned something. Here's the last word. It is much easier to write a book from scratch than it is to go back and puzzle piece an existing one. Well, what, what I have seen of the second edition, I think, is is a marvelous addition to the literature on this particular. I love it. So I'm very excited about it. Pre-order The Case for Life today. Thank you, Scott, for coming on. Have a great day. Thank you, man. Jay. Great to have you as a colleague. Again, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Scott Klusendorf. I hope you've enjoyed We're going to call this, let's, we're going to call this season one. We're going to say we're doing 10 episode seasons. I'm making, I'm making a call right here, right now. I mean, it's just... There's like four of us really involved in this other than the guests that we have coming on. So JD and I represent like half of the team putting this together. So in this room, JD and I are in right now, we're doing 10 episode seasons. So we're going to take a, a break while we edit these things, while we work on the 10 episodes that we've already produced, while we look to mine them for more resources for everybody. Uh, if you have enjoyed these 10 episodes, this is a growth thing for this organization. We are, we're committing to the idea of making these as the mothership of our online content. And we are going to build off of these as we move forward. We're only going to get better. And, and I'm, you know, I know it's me and, and people I like working together, which makes this a lot of fun for me, but we've enjoyed it and we've received some really good feedback so far. And so one of the things I want to encourage everybody is we're going to keep doing this and we're going to get better, but we need your help. So if you will go to merelyhumanministries.org and I will put a link under this for the donation page. And you're willing to help us out towards making this, to making these series of videos, this series of audio, this series of podcasts. Uh, it will be as much appreciated because it's a joy to make them. And it's even more fun when people tell me that they've heard them. And I enjoy people talking about the pro-life stuff that we covered. And, and surprisingly, I really enjoy it when people contact me about zombies or my position on Darth Vader and midichlorians. Um, I've never received as much pushback as I have by saying what I said about Hall and Oates. I want to go on record right now and saying I will not be deterred in my position that Hall and Oates gave us three, four really, really solid songs. Uh, yeah, 
she's gone. That that's awesome. All right, so she's gone is just killer. All right, but so this has been fun. Season one has been fun. I already have guests lined up for season two. We'll take a brief hiatus from recording. I don't even know if you'll notice it, but then we will get back to work on this. And I would say from our viewpoint, we started this just to see what would happen. And it has become, for me, it is a, a labor of love. I, I could not have imagined how much fun it would be not just to record these, to get a good sense of what you're like as a human being in ministry, being me and working on this, but also the, the collaborative spirit that I have felt from other people who have listened, who have contacted me and said they want to be guests, from the guests who have been on that have contacted me to tell me how much fun that they've had, from the people who are excited about and, and suggesting other guests for me and, and calling me up and saying they enjoyed this conversation, maybe I want to talk to this person. All of it has been a, su a surprise. And so thank you for season one. We look forward to season two. And if you're enjoying it, we could use your help. Uh, if you're not, I don't know why you're here at the end of the episode anyway. So I'm assuming <laughs> if you're here, you were here, must be enjoying it. Because uh, if you're not, you're just a glutton. Then you're hate listening or hate watching. And if you're a hate listener and a hate watcher, then, then you better pay because you're going to want to hate me. I'm going to get so much more hateable as this show goes. I mean, the more I talk, the more, more likely it is I'm going to make you hate me even more. So if you're a hate listener, you owe us even more. Give us your money, hate listeners. Everybody else, please contribute. If you're a hate listener, give us your money and shut up. How about that? How's that, how's, how's that in season one? <laughs> Thank you for joining us. 